Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors, or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelock. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Hello, world. This is JS Party, where we're throwing a party every week about JavaScript and the web. My name is Jared Santo, and hey, it's the pre-party this week for next week's live party at JSConf. If you're going to JSConf, do not miss it. We will have four awesome JS Party panelists live at lunch hour on Tuesday, August 21st. If you're not going to JSConf, well, I guess emoji sad face. You're you're in the same group as me. I sadly will not be there, but K-Ball, Nick, Suze, and Faraz will be live on stage. Do not miss that, but we have a show for you today, and uh, as always, awesome panelists. So, uh, welcome them back, Chris. What's up, Chris? Hello, how you doing? All good. Nick Nisi is here. What's up, Nick? Hello. Tell the people all you're doing at JSConf next week so we can all pity you. <laughs> well, uh, I'm part of the JS Party uh, live panel, and then immediately following that, I'm doing a Track B talk. Uh, the title is No Time for Types. Uh, it'll it, It's secretly about TypeScript, though. Uh, and then I'm also there with the TalkScript podcast, uh, doing interviews. So very busy and nerve wracking as of course, uh, K-Ball also here. K-Ball, you're gonna be running the JS party show next week. What's up, man? You got it. I'm excited to be emceeing that JS party live. And then I will also be interviewing folks, uh, for JS party. So if you're going to be there, especially if you're a speaker, but even not, you have something awesome you want to talk about, come find me in the hallways. There you have it. So for this show today, we have uh, a few new things. We're always liking to experiment here on the show and find out what works well, what doesn't work well. You know, that old fashioned iteration that we developers love so much. So I've kind of ginned up a few new segments that we're going to give a try. If you like these, let us know. If you think these are the worst ideas ever after having listened to them, please tell us. We want a show that is good, not necessarily a show that is just uh, new and unique, but we're going to try out a few different things this week and see how it goes. The first segment we are calling Story of the Week. Now, 
the way this works is we have all found different stories around the ecosystem throughout the week, maybe even going back a little bit further than a week. No big deal. But what's the biggest thing that happened this week or the most important news, maybe just to you personally, maybe for everybody involved? We will all share uh, a new story and we will try to convince one another why it's a big deal, why it's important, why perhaps it's the story of the week. So let's give it a shot. Nick, you are up first, my friend. Yes. What's your story of the week? So uh, mine is probably one that falls in the not actually this week part because I was really struggling. It seems like a slow week in Java, in the JavaScript world, at least. Uh, and so I was going back through the, the recent things that were popular on Twitter, and uh, I found this tool, NDB, uh, by Google Chrome Labs on GitHub. And it's a NPM module that you can install that vastly improves uh, debugging Node uh, with the Chrome Dev Tools. And so um, if you haven't done that before, it's really cool. I think we might have talked about it on a previous episode, but... You can type in like node dash dash inspect dash brk or dash dash inspect and then uh, give it a command to run uh, or a file to to run in node and it will open up uh, or it'll give you a link that you can paste into the Chrome Dev Tools. Um, Chrome Canary at least also immediately puts a dedicated Node Dev Tools button in your uh, Dev Tools if you have that open. So mm. that's pretty cool. Uh, completely unrelated to this, what this is is a node module that um, will streamline that process for you a little bit. It'll automatically open up the Chrome DevTools, and you can actually open it for your project. So you can just say NDB space period, and it will open it up for that project. And I don't know if it's like broken or if I'm not running it correctly, but it actually lists out all of the scripts for my package.json uh, in there with a little run button next to them. But when I try and do that, I can't actually get it to run. So uh, not sure if that's just broken or the way that I had it, but if that works, that would be really cool because I'm constantly having to go look up what scripts are actually available in whatever project, uh, and just having them listed there and immediately being able to run them kind of as like a, a dashboard that also does the, the debugging would be really cool. And then finally, the, the big thing that this does that's way better than just running node with the dash dash inspect flag is typically I'll want to debug scripts. Like I'll want to actually be running TS node or I'll want to be running gulp or grunt or something. Uh, and I want to be able to debug that. And if you want to do that with uh, node, you have to run node and then point to the binary for that. So like gulp, you'd have to go look in your node modules directory and the dot bin directory and then uh, the gulp script there. And then uh, it will run for that. And you can set breakpoints in there. This will just automatically let you say NDB gulp uh, test or whatever, and it will immediately set that up and it sets up watchers uh, for all of the child processes that might get kicked off in there. The other cool thing that it does is it, um, anything that's not in your sources directly, like anything that's uh, in your node modules, for example, uh, it black boxes that by default. So that means that when you're looking at a stack trace, you don't actually see the code from your node modules directories, you just see the code that you're actually running and debugging, and you just kind of assume that the node modules are correct. I'm just looking at this now, and this thing actually looks pretty cool. At first, I was like, well, what's the difference between this and just using Chrome DevTools? But it looks like it, it definitely streamlines things. So like, if you want to uh, debug tests, say, in Mocha, and um, you want to do that with Chrome DevTools, you have to call the, not, not Mocha, um, executable, but the underscore Mocha executable, because this is a child process that, that Mocha launches, and you can't just attach to 
you know, Mocha because the, the inspector won't know that you're actually running your tests in the trial process. But if this thing actually works, I haven't tried it, but I'm, I'm looking at the interface. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. This, this is really going to, you know, make things a lot easier for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. And I love that it's uh, Google Chrome Labs, so it's, uh, so I would assume, going to be well-supported going forward. I don't know if you can assume that from Google. Like Google, <laughs> yeah. re like Google Reader? <laughs> oh, yeah, good, like, good point. <laughs> oh, salt in the wound. Still hurts. It still hurts. Yeah, too soon, Jared. It's too soon. It's been like five years. I, I am curious what they're using Puppeteer for. Um, I, I assume it's just to like launch the browser and then basically, you know, launch um, dev tools and and fiddle with fiddle with dev tools and stuff like that. Um, that's pretty neat. So yeah, this is this is really cool. And it just I installed it and it took a few seconds and it works and it's pretty awesome. So cool. Thanks. All right, Nick. Sounds like so far you, have one, you might have one vote. For uh, story of the week, there, Chris's might be voting for you. Well, Chris, what'd you bring to the table here? What's your uh, story of the week? So yeah, uh, slow week. Um, it really was. But uh, you know, their Babel uh, Seven is going to be released very soon, and um, if you haven't been keeping tabs on, on what's happening there, the, the the big thing that people are, are probably going to um, get up in arms about. Um, is that Babel is deprecating um, uh, the stage modules. So you can't go in um, in Babel 7 and say, um, you know, install Babel preset stage 3 or whatever. They're not going to support those anymore. Um, they're going to basically expect you to... Uh, more or less figure out which features you need. Um, you know, I think it sounds like, you know, Babel preset ENV will help with that, but uh, it sounds like they're encouraging people to make their own presets um, because, you know, the, the rationale, and there's a blog post on, on um, their site, it's uh, like babeljs.io or uh, something, and so there's a, a blog post there where uh, Henry talks about um, well, this is why we're we're deprecating stages, and um, one of the reasons is that people will be like, "Hey, how can I use feature X?" Um, and then somebody will say, "Oh, use Babel preset stage zero or something like that." And so people install Babel preset stage zero, and they don't really know what they're getting into. Um, and so if if for those that don't also don't know, so stage a stage zero contains features that have not been approved um, for for the JavaScript spec and may not ever be approved. And so they're they're very experimental. And if you're using that in in your production code, well, you you may have you know, kind of coded yourself into a corner um, because those features that you may be using, um, you know, th those you might need to back those out uh, at some point. And so Babel doesn't, doesn't want this to happen because I think they, they feel like they are partly responsible for, for people doing this because they're making it essentially too easy to shoot yourself in the foot. And so there's, they're, they're going to drop these, these uh, presets. And if you need a feature, um, you have to go and basically add the plugin um, 
or, or again, create your own preset. Uh, so that's kind of a big change. There is a tool that they wrote to help you upgrade to Babel 7 from, uh, I assume, just v version 6, um, where they probably will go and see which stage presets you're using and actually go and, and change all your stuff to, um, to use the individual plugins. Uh, it does stuff like, there's all sorts of things. So it, it, it changes a bunch of dependencies. Um, it modifies, uh, if you're using Babel with Mocha, it'll find that in your, in your package JSON, which is really neat. And it'll, it'll change uh, uh, some of the module names. Um, they're now going to publish all of their modules because, you know, there's you know, like hundreds of Babel modules. They're going to use the at Babel um, scope namespace now at NPM. Um, and so you're gonna you're gonna be using that instead of like Babel loader or whatever Babel dash register. You're gonna use at Babel slash forward slash register. Um, and so there's all these things that they're working on to help you migrate. Um, but once you're there, yeah, I I I haven't read any any um, anything that people have written, but I assume somebody's going to get really upset and, and write this. Uh, I hope they don't, but you know things happen. But somebody's going to write this big thing about how this is the wrong thing to do and it makes everything really difficult and it was already difficult and blah, blah, blah. Um, so uh, I, I, I want to see how this shakes out. But uh, I agree with, with the direction they're heading, even though it, it maybe makes things a little more, um, a little more, it, it makes you think a little bit more about how you're using Babel and what you're doing. And I don't think that's a bad thing. So question, are they... What's what's the you said they're going to release soon and I I just googled for you know 7.0 Babel release or Babel 7 release and I see articles going back a year saying we're nearing the release. So what what's different this time? How do we know they're actually releasing soon? <laughs> they just keep saying it. <laughs> well, uh so there's been betas for quite a while uh and now they're at like RC2 or whatever. So I mean, it's being actively developed. Um I don't know. I mean, it seems like it's coming pretty soon to me, but uh, it, it sounded like from the, the release notes that they don't intend to make any more changes. Um, they don't intend to add anything or, or fix anything, and this is uh, or necessarily, uh, unless there's some last-minute critical deal. Um, it sounds like they're going to release soon. I can't... I don't know, but it sounds like it from the, 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 change, uh, the change logs, so... It'll be good to get this out for sure. Uh, it's been confusing. The website specifically has been confusing uh, for me for a little while now. Uh, like if you go to the docs section of babbelj.io, uh, under tooling, it talks about all of the different modules that they have, including like Babylon, but you click on that and it just takes you to a 404 on, on the live page right now. Uh, but if you switch over to the the pre-release docs, then it's Babel Parser and it it does correctly point you to that. Um, so I'm excited for this to get out so that things become less confusing around all of this tooling. Yeah, I mean, uh, people are still going to be using Babel 6 and, and, and they're probably going to be looking for the documentation and, and have, have trouble finding it. But sure, um, you know, again, Babel is, a, is not a, a, as far as I know, it's not, it doesn't have any corporate sponsorship directly. Um, you know, it's pretty much Henry and uh, some other people that are that are you know volunteering their time to work on it, and so I assume they don't have a whole lot of resources to do things like keep old documentation up to date. So, sure, I, I sympathize, but um, yeah, 
definitely sympathize. Yep. I do thought they did have some success, at least on Open Collective, in terms of uh, corporate sponsorship, but I, surely nothing that's like driving uh, full time. Well, maybe they are. I don't know. Uh, I think Henry has a Patreon or something that that he's he's basically working on open source full time now. But um, you know, you can have all the money in the world, and and if you don't have you know, there's 24 hours in a day. So right. if you're the only person working on it, um, there's only so much you can do. And, or if, if, if people don't have time to dedicate, you know, you could be flush with cash and, and not be able yep. to get much done because, you know, time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping. <laughs> I know, That's right. You, Into the future. Speaking of K-Ball, Hey, your turn, man. What's uh, your story of the week? Yeah, so the thing I wanted to talk about was uh, there's been a resurgence of interest and focus on JavaScript performance, and in particular, JavaScript load and parse performance. Not the, you know, we had all this stuff about, okay, is React making it faster to update the DOM, or how fast are these things to, to do a lot of updates? But we've also gotten into this world where everybody's just adding more and more JavaScript, and there hasn't been as much attention on uh, sort of what the impacts of load and parse time are. Um, and so we're coming back around. That used to be a huge issue. Then people forgot about it. Coming back around to it, I've seen a ton of articles in the last few weeks looking at uh, this. I think you know the one that sparked it was Adi Asmani uh, from Google did an article on the cost of JavaScript in 2018 that blew up. And he sort of talked a lot about what um, how expensive it is, particularly on less than cutting edge devices. And um, then there's been lots of follow-ons. How do you do this? What is code splitting good enough? What, what sort of other things? Uh, another article I saw on this that I thought was really interesting was looking at the impacts of the push to make everything HTTPS. Mm. And the fact that that essentially kills your ability to do uh, create local caching servers because local caching servers are essentially man in the middle. Uh, so it's better for security, but you know this article was highlighting you know if he, he was he did something in rural Uganda, rural Uganda, and their connection to the internet is a satellite internet access, and so there's a ping latency of half a uh, yeah half a second, and lots and lots of dropped packets, and so not being able to have a local caching server essentially kills their ability to access the internet for a very large number of things. Um, and so, you know, there are pros and cons to this, but it, it got me thinking a lot about the people who are not in the first world. And we, this has come up before on the, the podcast. I was this last week, I was in Costa Rica. Um, T-Mobile lets you access data for free. If you're on one of their main plans from like a hundred countries, but the speed of access in Costa Rica is like 2G. So I'm on, you know, a fast phone, I'm on an iPhone, but I had 2G internet and it was amazing how slow things were and just appallingly bad. And it, it reminded me how much you get used to bandwidth being, feeling essentially free. Things are so fast. And so I, you know, this re-sparking of the interest in you know, we, we actually need to cut down. We need to have a JavaScript budget. We need to think about the impacts of all these millions of libraries we're pulling in. Uh, we need to, you know, code splitting is, is a nice thing and our tooling is, is improving for that. Um, but, you know, having all of these things front of mind 
when we're developing, if we're developing things that are not just for folks who are in countries with ridiculously fast internet access, which the U.S., even though, well, actually, I don't know about rural parts of the U.S., certainly in California, you know, even with just mobile access, it's ridiculously fast. Like 4G LTE is wicked fast, mm. but not everybody has that. Yeah, this is something that's been on top of my mind recently. We had Ben Halpert on the changelog this week talking about Dev2, which is a, a developer community platform he founded. You may know him as the Practical Dev on Twitter. And he's taken huge steps to make Dev2 very fast, um, but not just fast in the Americas, but fast all around the world. And so he's really, really leveraging CDNs in order just to bring his content uh, as close to the edges, you know, as close to the users as possible. Um and it made me rethink a little bit of some of our architectures. Now, we try to make changelog.com as fast as possible and as accessible as possible as well. And I think we're doing a pretty good job on that, but we definitely have the speed of light problem, um, having an American-based server. And we can serve those pages really, really fast, but latency is just something we cannot solve. Of course, we CD in all of our assets, but I'm, I'm referring to rendered pages. So something that's uh, very important, and often, like you said, Kevin, we just don't think about it very much. Um, maybe because we're on fast networks, but also maybe because we're just geographically close to, you know, uh, AWS's US East One, where most of the internet gets served from, right? Right. Okay, for my story of the week, Vue CLI 3.0. And uh, as has been said a few times, this was probably a bad week to try out this segment as there hasn't been huge news in our space this week, but definitely some releases, definitely some stuff going on conversations being had. One of the big releases uh, from August 10th, which is pretty close, I guess that's this week, was Vue CLI 3.0. So Evan, you writing on uh, on Medium about the release, says that it's a completely different beast from its previous version. So this is the command line interface that's built into Vue or provided with Vue um, specific for that tool set. And this is a trend that we've seen really started, I think, by the Ember team years ago having Ember CLI, and we've seen it kind of matriculate across to all the different front-end frameworks. React has one, Angular has one, now Vue has one, and of course this is 3.0, so the CLI is not new, but the guts, the feature set, all these things are brand new. Um, and some cool stuff going on. So the goal of that rewrite that they did was twofold. The first one was to reduce configuration fatigue of modern front-end tooling, which I think we can all agree Maybe JS fatigue isn't a thing, but configuration fatigue is definitely a thing. Um, and this is especially when they're mixing multiple tools together, which is what tends to happen on the front end. And then they wanted to incorporate best practices in the tool chain as much as possible. So it becomes a default for any view app. So there's a lot more details. Uh, one of the big things that I noticed was that they've pre-configured Webpack features. All that stuff, you know, if you're going to pre-configure Webpack for me, I'm just going to give you a big fat kiss because I'm going to love that because I do not want to configure Webpack. And they've pre-configured hot module replacement, code splitting, tree shaking, efficient long-term caching, error overlays, etc. So all the good stuff there ready for you to go. Um, the cool thing about this is they've been very cognizant of developers' need to tweak those configurations. So what happens a lot of times when you have tools that kind of wrap other tools is they will hide, they'll sweep all of the complexity under the table, which is what we want, right? Because we don't want to deal with the complexity. We want to provide a better experience. 
But then when it comes time and you actually get to using it and you actually need to reach underneath the table and tweak that thing, you either have to eject, which is basically say, okay, I'm no longer going to stick with this tool. I'm going to like stop the world and fork it or uh, vendor it or something like that. Uh, or you just don't have the option. Like you just can't reach underneath the hood and tweak things as you will. So they've taken great pains to make this configurable uh, with no need to eject, which I know is hard to do and an admirable goal. So uh, hopefully they've achieved it. It definitely looks very good. So we'll link up the announcement post. Uh, this seems like big news. I'm not a view user. Cable, I thought maybe I was stealing this one from you when I put it into the document. Because I know you're, uh, you've been using Vue quite a bit lately, and thought a little maybe this bit, one yeah, would be on your radar. It, yeah, there's actually there's something pretty interesting about it too uh, that you didn't cover yet, which is that it adds a GUI access to a lot of the CLI pieces. So it gives you sort of a, you know, within the the ecosystem, like if you're installing plugins, whatever. Normally, you just you know do that on the CLI, npm, etc. It lets you do a lot of that stuff from a GUI and manages the, the configuration and updating your package JSON and all that sort of thing, which to me personally, I couldn't care less because I'm a terminal guy. Yeah. But one of the things that Vue has historically done very well is making this advanced JavaScript framework feel accessible to people who do not consider themselves hardcore coders. Um, it's way easier if you're coming from a design background. It's way easier if you're coming from a less of a coding background. You know, folks routinely say that the view is, you know, they can pick up view far faster than if they try to do React or something. And I think this is leaning into that trend as well of saying, hey, you know, a huge part of what you're doing with a non-trivial application is configuring and pulling in plugins. Let's make that more accessible to folks who are newer, to folks who are more visually oriented, to folks who don't live in their command line. Yeah, that is very cool and definitely a blind spot for me as also a command line junkie. Um, I didn't even pick up on the on the GUI uh, in the post. I mean, I saw it, but I was like, oh, that's cool looking. But I didn't think about it very much. So that is definitely great for accessibility and really for making uh, more difficult things easier, which is what we're definitely trying to do as library and framework authors. So very cool. Check that out. Um, as for my pitch, I'm going to pitch this as the story of the week. And here's my two reasons. Uh, the first one is 15,000 claps on medium so uh pretty big deal secondly i found this although we did log in on changelog news but i was i was re uh introduced to this by basically going to the r javascript and sorting by top and then setting week as my uh my filter and so there's a there's a a life hack if you're ever going to be on story of the week again and this was number one so uh, i think it's pretty much unequivocally the story of the week sorry guys i think i win (laughs) <laughs> Can I give a, a pro tip on, on finding <laughs> stories too? Yes, please do. Uh, there's this tool called Nuzzle, N-U-Z-Z-E-L, and you uh, OAuth into it with Twitter, and then it looks at your Twitter timeline and what everybody's posting, and then it sorts links by the ones that are talked about the most on Twitter. And I used that to to find, and I had to go back a little ways to find NDB, but I did find it. Now we're giving up all of our secrets, and someone else is going to start their own Story of the Week podcast. And totally dominate us. Can I uh, give a little slightly self-serving story or uh, pro tip on this? What if I said no? Just kidding. Go ahead. Then I wouldn't. Um, (laughs) Please do. So the slightly serving uh, 
self-serving pro tip is if you sign up to the newsletter that I publish, you'd see a lot of this, like that UI piece of the CLI yeah. uh, in the last episode of July was in my newsletter. So it's a little self-serving, but if you go to zendev.com slash Friday you can sign up and you hear about all of this every Friday. But then wouldn't you have to listen to our podcast anymore? No, we do. We do so much more cool stuff. <laughs> So I have some pretty awesome news to share. We are now partnered with Algolia. If you've ever searched Hacker News, Teespring, Medium, Twitch, or even Product Hunt, then you've experienced the results of Algolia's search API. And as we expand our content, we knew that one day we'd have to either roll our own search solution on top of Postgres, or we could partner up with Algolia. And I'm happy to report that phase one of our search is now powered by Algolia. We're able to fine tune our indexing, gain insights from search patterns and analytics. We can create custom query rules to influence ranking behavior, as well as improve our search experience by adding synonyms and alternative correction to queries. Sure, we could build search ourselves, but that would mean we would be busy doing that instead of shipping shows like you're listening to right now. Huge thanks to our friends at Algolia for working with us. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free or learn more by heading to algolia.com. Okay, next up, we are going to do a segment called What the What? WG. And uh, I'll just say that again because it's fun. What the What? <laughs> WG. I and get so it. the idea, yeah, you get it? So the idea here is that we were going to discuss uh, some of the stuff that What WG has been up to lately. Uh, so for those who do not know what the What WG is, it stands for the Web Hypertext Application Technology working group, which is why they use an acronym because nobody wants to say that five times fast. And it's a community of people interested in evolving the web through standards and tests. Now there's kind of an in, in and out between the WhatWG and the W3C or the World Wide Web Consortium, uh, who does what and, and why and when and how. So before I get into some of the standards that the WhatWG, uh, I can't even say it, the WhatWG are working on, uh, K-Ball is going to explain to us a little bit, as much as you can, K-Ball, uh, some of the history there and really what what the difference is between the two and all the ins and outs. Help us out. Yeah. So I started researching this when you brought up what WG, because I'd seen a little bit flow by uh, as you're reading stuff of like, oh, controversy, what WG and W3C uh, fighting about this or that, or you know, people trash talking one or the other. So the history is related to XHTML. W3C uh, started going down the road of XHTML and XML that is very, very rigid and unambiguous. Um, and they started pushing more and more in that direction. And browser vendors basically said, what, instead of what WG, they said, what TH, right? This is going to break backwards compatibility, which is the key value prop or one of the key value props of the web is that, you know, anybody can throw this stuff up and it just keeps working. And, uh, so in 2004, a bunch of browser vendors kind of banded together and said, well, you know what? Y'all are failing us because you're trying to do this in a way that's not going to keep the value proper of the web. We're going to create our own specification. And they kind of tried to work together, but they 
had very different approaches to it. So W3C likes to kind of create frozen specifications. So if you remember the whole like, we're going to have HTML5 and that's going to be like the new version of HTML5 and it's going to be frozen. That was what W3C wanted and what WG said, you know what, we're changing all the time. This should be a living standard. We should be constantly evolving it. Um, so they kind of split in different ways um, and the split was a little bit, uh, there's not a, this was a bad breakup <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, so there's, well, there's a lot of breaking up's hard to do. Uh, if you, if you start looking through like forum stuff or, or GitHub issues or things where this standards are being debated, there's a lot of bad blood as far as I can tell. Mm. Um, That's but too bad. what seems to happen now uh, according to what WG, and this, this is a direct quote, they say the W3C publishes some forked versions of our specifications. Uh, we've requested that they stop publishing these, but they have refused. They copy most of our fixes into their forks, but their forks are usually weeks to months behind. They also make intentional changes and sometimes unintentional changes to their versions. We highly recommend not paying any attention to the W3C forks of what WG standards. Wow. So they <laughs> essentially <laughs> yeah um, but most the vast majority of the work seems to be happening in for html in particular happening in what wg and mm -hmm. while w3c keeps publishing updates they appear to be primarily bad forks of the work that what wg is doing hmm. so what wg is worth watching and paying attention to it's mostly people working for the browser vendors. So a lot of these times, uh, specific vendors will add features, and we'll talk about one of those here soon with auto-capitalize, and they will add it to their browser and put it out in the wild for uh, a while and kind of prove it out as something that's useful or good for whatever reason. And then the WG will go back and standardize around that if everybody agrees that that is something worth standardizing around. And... So it's interesting, I mean, we talk about bleeding edge. It's not that bleeding because some of these things already exist in certain, you know, only in Chrome or works best in edge, that kind of thing. But as we see uh, specific features and changes formalized and turn into specs, um, then the other browsers are more likely to add it as well. So it's interesting, especially if you want to stay up on like the new stuff going into the web platform is to uh, find out what the what WG is working on, or at least considering, and then also what has been added as of recent. So with that in mind, let's talk about a couple of things here. And uh, the first one is the one that's really been on my plate lately, which is why I've been thinking about this and was excited to find out that it might be coming to browsers soon, uh, which is lazy loading images and iframes. Now, if you're on uh, Lighthouse or any sort of like performance tool, one of the very first recommendations they will say is you should be lazy loading off-screen images. So for example, changelog.com has a whole bunch of avatars and images on the newsfeed for news items that you may never scroll down to. And when you load our page, we are going to go down, you know, the browser is going to go down and fetch all of those images uh, into the page no matter what unless you tell it not to. Unfortunately, there's no built-in way to tell it not to. You have to basically do some JavaScript, which I think is a very big hack, which includes not adding a source attribute to your image tags um, 
until the JavaScript adds it for you, basically. And there's lots of ways of doing this. The most modern way is to use Intersection Observer, which, as we've learned lately, uh, has some issues as well. But this is something that like pretty much every website wants to do in terms of performance, is we have 75 images, and the user has only seen three of those. Do not waste time and bandwidth downloading all those images. So I've been complaining for a while now. As I want to do is just to complain mostly to Adam and other members of, of the ChangeLog development team. Why is this not a browser feature? Like every browser uh, performance tool says you should be doing this. So like pretty much every website wants it. And then everybody has to go implement it for themselves, which sucks. Jared, um, you yeah. said you had to do it with some sort of uh, observer or something. Is that what you said? Well, so there's, I mean, there's different, yeah, intersection observer is the most modern way of doing this. So basically using that API, which is in modern browsers to detect when a element that has a, or an image, uh, comes onto the viewport. So instead of loading them all, you wait till they're on screen. And so intersection observer is a way of detecting when something has come into the viewport or is close uh. to the viewport. And so then it will go out and grab the image. And so basically what it does at that time is it takes the data dash source attribute, which is the, the URL of the image, and it just sets it as the source. And the browser goes ahead and, and does that. So that's a modern way of doing it. I think there was, a, there, I mean, there's people have been doing this for years because like I said, everybody tries or everybody has to or wants to. Um, and I'm not sure how they used to do it. K-Ball, do you know how uh, older implementations of a lazy load would, would detect on-screen elements? Or maybe they would just defer you the do loading. It, you do it basically the way that the polyfill for intersection observer works, which is you literally like check over and over again, is this thing in my viewport? Which, yeah, that's what so you said. Great. Yeah, <laughs> you, set up, you set up an interval, right? And it just checks every now and then. So there you go. And yeah, because intersection observer, uh, Nick just linked to it there in the chat. Uh, if you go to can I use, you'll find that it's on most modern browsers. I think maybe Safari's the mobile Safari and Safari are the one that it's not on. I don't remember, but you have to use a polyfill if you're going to use the modern way. Um, Wouldn't you just want to pull um, like on a on a scroll event or something? Or does it? For, is there a reason to do it all the time? Oh, you could. Yeah, you can do that. You still need to debounce. So the overarching theme here is it's a lot of work, right? And everybody needs to be doing it. And so that's like prime candidacy to, to, to you know who knows the, the best in terms of like when a user would desire an image to be actually fetched? Probably the, the software closest to the user, right? Probably the browser itself. That's my take. Yeah. And so that's, uh, thankfully, the WebWG has been uh, working on this. And there's a draft spec um, if you are on the githubs it's on the what wg repo in the html or the what wg organization the html repo and it's pull request 3752 we'll link that up if you want to read it you get you dive into the details here and you realize why these things don't necessarily move very fast because there's so many different things for them to, to consider and uh and so it's a very active process but there is a draft spec for lazy loading of images and iframes uh, built right into the browser. So basically what you'll do is add an attribute to your images. I think it's like lazy load equals true, or there's a few different things that you can do in order to how to, how to control it. But it's something that is coming and is not here quite yet, but it's actively being worked on so that in a future, uh, in an unknown future, uh, we won't have to be working quite so hard to, to do this for people. 
So Jared, do you know how how they manage the ongoing split of things between W3C and what WG? Because HTML ended up in what WG, but CSS is in W3C working groups. Right. And JavaScript things seem to be split randomly across the two. <laughs> Uh, do you yes, have any sense I of like... I don't know the politics. I feel like uh, maybe if we had Faras on this episode or maybe even Alex would know the actual split out. Um, I know what, what WG works on, which like you said, HTML, the DOM, a fetch, right? These different things. They have a list of like, these are our territory. URL, stream, storage. And then like you said, CSS is on the W3C side. I'm not sure what else is on the W3C side. But you would think that you would want all of these things to be worked on together because like where I have CSS in a silo, seems like that's, that's not good. But no, I do not know why or how that all shook out. Well, and different JavaScript APIs are like split across the two, I think. Um, like audio APIs and things like that are in W3C, but you know, XHTML requests or whatever is in what WG. And the notifications API is what WG, but yeah, it, it seems pretty random from the outside. Yeah. And it's very opaque as well. So yeah, as, as I proposed this segment, like, Hey, let's talk about what they've been up to and what they're doing, because I think that's, I think that's helpful to shine a light on. At least people know, okay, lazy load. Hey, it's coming soon. Um, or this, you know, stuff gets rejected. Right. And one of the things Chris asked was like, well, how do you even do that? How do you even look at it? And basically you're just scrolling. And in terms of the what WG, you're just going through GitHub issues and clicking on different tags, like additional slash or a proposal, seeing what's been merged, seeing what's been going on. Some things are approved. Lots of, lots of discussion going on. So this could be like a full-time job participating. And I think a lot of the people who are participating work like Jake Archibald, for instance, work at like web platform teams for Google, for Apple, for Microsoft. And so it really is a full-time job by multiple people to, to do these things. They have, a, I'm just going through their list. They have a spec on quirks mode. It includes <laughs> such fun things as defining quirky colors and uh, quirk lengths and quirky lengths. <laughs> All these other basically backwards compatibility things for a really old HTML or really old CSS. Yeah. Sounds fun. They also do have a, a console and I, a console spec and I didn't realize that that was actually a spec. Yeah. I noticed that as well. And I was kind of scrolling through the different areas to see what has the most activity in terms of the, what WG uh, organization and the console one is like, there's just nothing good. It's like, you know, tumbleweed. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them, there's like the fetch one has some activity and then like the quirks mode one is completely in terms of people like proposing things, talking about things, merging docs, and then the HTML and then the fetch and a few of them are like super active. So yeah, not, they, they do have a console working group or whatever it's called, but there's just not much, not much activity going on there. So one other example I wanted to pull in. So we had the, the image lazy loading, which is a proposal that is have a spec drafted. It's not there yet. Um, so it's probably, who knows, it could be years maybe before these things fa are found in enough browsers to, to use them. But, um, here's an example of, I guess the process working, which is the auto capitalize attribute. And so this is one that's been merged. Uh, we'll link to this as well. If you want to read through, uh, everything yourself, but it's past tense it has been merged. It's even on Mozilla developer network docs, all that kind of stuff is finished. 
and it's kind of cool watching the way this works. So the auto capitalize attribute is uh, in iOS specifically on input fields, right? So you can uh, set auto capitalize equal to true or whatever the values are, and it will instruct the browser's keyboard or the, the device's keyboard to capitalize first words and whatnot on behalf of the user because on mobile devices, you know, these things are more cumbersome. So Apple just added that. They didn't ask anybody's advice. They didn't like, you know, put it out there as like, this is something everybody should do. They just put it into iOS. And I think it's been there for years, but it doesn't exist anywhere else. It's just there. But iOS has a big enough market share. And so therefore Mobile Safari has enough people using it that it became something that developers have been adding to their sites. Has anybody used this attribute or had to deal with it? No. Not yet, but I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate I hate it when I run into... Actually, that's not true that I haven't used it. I have used it to say auto-capitalize false. So yes, turn it off. I, uh, turn it off, Apple. It's terrible. <laughs> so here's where I've, I've also turned it off once. And specifically on email fields where they yes. will auto-capitalize like the first letter of an email address. And if your site isn't set up to like normalize those or downcase them before searching, it won't find the user because you have case-sensitive searching or something like that. So yes, it can be annoying. Um, but now it can be annoying in all the browsers <laughs> <laughs> because there it has been merged into the WhatWG's HTML spec. And I'll just read this uh, this comment on it because it is kind of, I think, instructive of how these things kind of shake out. So this is on the on the issue, the Chrome team. This is a member of the Chrome team. He says the Chrome team is currently attempting to update our implementation of the auto capitalize attribute in Chrome for Android. And then in parentheses, currently a non-standard extension introduced by Apple. He says to match the behavior of iOS Safari, specifically to add support for auto capitalize on editable regions, inheritance from the form owner for and text area elements blah, 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 blah. He said, as part of this work, we would like to standardize this attribute in the HTML spec. He says, the goal with this spec change is to document iOS Safari's behavior. So ideally, Apple won't have to make any changes to their implementation so that other browsers, such as Chrome for Android, can implement the attribute with the same behavior. So this is, this is how this process happens, I think, often, or I've at least heard it happens often. And here's a good example, is somebody goes out and implements a thing, in this case, Apple, we know Chrome leads the way on many new features, some which end up you know, getting into other browsers, some that don't. Sometimes, speaking of Apple, a lot of the times Apple's the last holdout on specific features that lots of us developers want. Um, but in this case, they added it, and despite the three of us, I don't know, Chris, if you've dealt with this, uh, being on IoT and backend mostly, uh, not liking it and turning it off, uh, apparently it serves a valid use for enough users that this is something that uh, they decided to formalize around. And so the goal here was not to like make Apple change their, their behavior because probably they wouldn't do it anyways, but to just say, okay, this is a feature that we think should be in all browsers and Apple has led the way. And so we're just going to formalize a specification basically using exactly the way that Apple has implemented it. And so they move forward with that. They all got agreement. You can read all the comments and it rolled out. So interesting just seeing the ins and outs of such a small thing right like it's a single attribute on a few element types and uh 40 conversations here uh six commits to get this thing merged so a lot of work going in behind the scenes that i think maybe we take for granted um maybe we get mad about but a uh, lots of effort involved in even the smallest changes 
to these issues. The improvements in the way that we deal with specifications and updates and the fact we now have, you know, browsers that are evergreen and all sort of at least more or less collaborating, like I feel like that is an under noticed reason why the web has become so powerful, right? Like we've gotten so much better as an industry at working together to improve these things, but it is often just behind the scenes. Good point. Yeah, it's definitely gotten better. And I think the workflow specifically around GitHub, these things were, you know, a lot of these things have been transparent for a long time, but there's something about a common platform that everybody knows how to use and is uh, very accessible that makes them more transparent. Like I would have never in the past dug into this stuff, but the fact that it's like, oh, it's just a GitHub issues, start reading them. You know, here's the labels. Like it all is very familiar. I feel like the transparency and the, even though they're driven very much by the big players, like the ability for people to get involved is better than ever. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Indeed. Indeed is the world's number one job site with a seemingly simple mission of helping people get jobs. That seems pretty simple, right? Well, beneath the layers of simplicity is a company solving very complex problems to help folks like you and me to get jobs. And speaking of jobs, they are in need of talented people themselves, passionate people to work together to make their mission of helping people get jobs possible. Here's a conversation I had with Brian Cheney, Director of Talent Attraction, about Indeed and how they're more than just a job board. People think that they know Indeed. The perception is that we're just a job board and we've gone so far beyond jobs. And so one of the cool things that an engineer would find out working on Indeed products is that we've got layers and layers of data. We, ha we have over eight petabytes of data generated every day and just to touch on uh, some of what you can slice and analyze, uh, we have data scientists that focus on pulling that data, really interpreting it, and empowering other areas of the business to use the data. And I think the kicker is that most people haven't seen a lot of change from Indeed over the last few years. And there's so much that's been changing under the hood. And so to understand all the things that we're touching on and building and the layers beneath that job search process and helping people really, really using machine learning to match people with the jobs that they're likely going to be a fit for. That's those are the exciting things that, that, that we get to build and, and really allows people to make a difference in hundreds of millions of people's lives. So if you think you are a good fit for Indeed's mission of helping people get jobs, head to indeed.jobs slash changelog to learn more and take that first step. Once again, it's indeed.jobs slash changelog. All right, everyone, it is now pro tip time. This is where we share our pro tips. Pretty straightforward. Uh, whether or not we're actual pros, that's for you to decide. These could be life hacks. They could be lessons learned from doing dumb things. Not that you would do that, but I surely have done some dumb things. And let's share them so other people can learn and perhaps take away things and avoid uh, fails if possible. So, Chris, pro tip time. So, I have some pro tips. Um... I use a Mac. If you use a Mac, um, maybe a thing you need to do 
is uh, copy and or paste text files, source files, or, or what have you, in their entirety. And so I discovered uh, not too long ago, and maybe this is one of those things that everybody knows except me, but I discovered that there were actually a couple command line tools with that, that, that come in um, Mac OS that help you do just this thing. And so um, they are uh, uh, PB paste and PB copy. And so um, PB paste will, um, it, it outputs to uh, uh, standard out. It takes whatever is in the clipboard and, and uh, it sends it to standard out. And so you can pipe it to whatever you want to pipe it to. And so um, maybe you want to pipe that to a file. And so uh, if you copy like some source and then you go to your command line, you say PB paste, and then you do like a, a you know, a, the right, I don't even know if that's less than or greater than, but you're pasting to the right, or you're uh, you're piping to the right with the with the direction, um, and you say you know foo.js. It will you know paste the contents of your clipboard into a new file foo.js. Um, I wrote like a little tiny uh, uh, sh function uh, called paste, which does just this. It takes its first parameter and it says pb paste, and it and it writes to this this new file and so i say paste foo.js it takes whatever's in my clipboard throws it in a new file foo.js likewise pb copy um you can cat a file and then pipe it to pb copy and, and that file's content will end up in your clipboard um and uh again i wrote a little function to help with that so uh it just accepts its first parameter and it uh cats it this this file and it it it, it pipes it off to your to your clipboard which is really cool um Along the same lines, there's another uh, little thing called Z, and people may or may not know about Z. Maybe we talked about Z before. I don't know. But there's this uh, command line tool for your shell called Z. It's like, um, just search GitHub for Z. And it basically looks at all your you know, shell history. It looks where you've been. And if you say something like Z, um, you know, node or something. It'll find uh, the the last directory um, that you were in called node and it'll just pop you right back there. And so it's a great way to um, navigate to frequently visited directories or working copies. Um, and it's really neat. Um, another tool I use is called, uh, and this is, apparently there's science behind this, I, I can't say whether or not that's true, but it's it's brain.fm and what it is, it's a service that you pay a nominal fee for and they give you a mobile app and a web app and it's like um, the best way to maybe explain it is uh, AI generated, it's generative music, uh, there's many different styles, but it's there, there's some science behind it that says if you listen to this music, it'll help you, for example, focus on a task or it'll help you relax um, because of you know, various tones and tempos and, and frequencies in the music. And so I don't know about that, but I wanted to try it. And so I did try it and I found out that it, it's really helpful um, when I'm trying to focus on coding and it helps me get and stay kind of into into the flow um you know i i feel like you know if if you do a lot of coding 
maybe you recognize that sometimes you get into this flow state and I feel like the, the, the music generated by brain.fm may, may help you do that. Maybe it won't. Maybe you'll find it boring, but it's supposed to be actually like kind of, it's not supposed to engage with you. It's supposed to be kind of in the background. Um, and so, uh, a lot of, of you know, popular music or, or even like maybe you listen to, I don't know, techno or trance or something with that beat, um, you know, kind of drives you forward to, to help. But maybe sometimes that type of music is a little too engaging. And uh, the Brain FM music is kind of like, it's like techno elevator music or something. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting. You just, just throw it on the background, forget about it, and um, it, it helps me focus. Um, and so, yeah, check that out. Um, it's cool. And the last thing, there is a thing called Astral. Uh, if you're like me, you have like a million GitHub stars and um, you may not, you know, what was that thing I was thinking of and how do I find it? I, I don't even know how to do that with GitHub. So there's this app called Astral App. It's astralapp.com. It's just like a an OAuth style GitHub app. And it helps you manage and view all your stars and you can even tag your stars into categories and, and like sort stuff by language and it's really neat. So um, if you are like me and have a lot of stars, check out Astral App and that will help you like manage them and, and find things. And those are my pro tips. Very cool. I've also used Brain FM and I, I, I do think it is good programming music. So I'm with you on that one. I was going to say the same thing. Oh, I haven't used haven't used Brain FM, but I use a similar surface called Focus at Will. It is also mm. excellent. I didn't know that. It's it's cool to find out that that people are actually using it besides me, and I'm not just some sort of like crackpot. Um, but I'm glad glad to maybe I'm a crackpot, but it's it, I'm I'm glad to hear that it's working. For You're amongst too. crackpots. You have crackpot friends. <laughs> Nick. Yeah, so uh, I've got two quick pro tips. Uh, the first one is a tool called JS Code Shift, uh, which is really cool. It's a, a way to create uh, what they call code mods for for your code. If you need to do some kind of repetitive change throughout your code base, um, you can do that uh, in a lot of different ways, like find and replace, uh, which I'll typically do in like a Vim macro or, or something like that. Um, but if you want a reproducible way to make changes to your code that is very safe because you're actually going to be using uh, the abstract syntax tree to, to do it, JS Code Shift and Code Mods are for you. Uh, and it's just a really cool way to, to be able to traverse the tree. And the tool does all of the traversing for you. So you just have to know what tokens you want to look for. Uh, for example, you could look for import statements in your code uh, and then change those in some programmatic way. So you can be guaranteed that you're not going to change some commented out um, import or a, a value in a string somewhere, but you're actually going to be changing the um, like the from string on an import statement to a new value. You can be very specific about what you want, make those changes, and then uh, have that as a code mod that you can share with friends and uh, have a reproducible way of doing that. So really cool. Uh, and then the second thing is two-factor authentication in 1Password. If you haven't been using it, uh, it's amazing. If you haven't been using 1Password, it's also amazing. Uh, my life revolves around that. That's the first thing I need on every device to get anything else. But they have kind of hidden in there a way to do two-factor authentication where if you were going to use Authenticator or Authy or one of those other apps in the past, you can just do it within 1Password. And the big benefit that you get is when 1Password autofills your username and password, it puts the 
one-time token on your clipboard, and then you can just paste that in when that screen comes up. And it works on iOS and on uh, Mac, and it's just great. So uh, I recommend you using that. 1Password will also tell you if uh, an application that you have a, a saved login for has two-factor authentication and you don't have that set up. It will tell you about that so that you can go in and be safe. That's it. Is it technically two-factor if it's the same thing doing it? That is a good question, but it would be <laughs> my phone in both cases. So I guess it's what level of abstraction that you have there. Have you guys ever had the situation where you do a SMS-based two-factor auth and then your Mac's continuity feature brings the SMS right back onto your Mac and it's right there in your yep. notification center and you're like, oh, I guess it's, I guess it's one factor again. <laughs> yep. Security is hard. All right, K-Ball, you're up. All right, mine is less of a tool and more of a life hack, uh, and that is to identify and validate your assumptions at every level of your life. And this can play out in the technical sense. Like the first step to debugging a problem for me is to go in and sort of identify for me what am I assuming and just check that those things are true. So often, particularly if I'm helping uh, when uh, like a junior dev or something, like we can find it. It's almost like uh, you know being a rubber duck. We find it just by saying, what are we assuming? Can we validate that those assumptions are actually true? Usually the bug comes from one of those assumptions not actually being true. But this plays out throughout your life. It's not just code, right? So some of my biggest personal breakthroughs have been from discovering that there was something, some mental model I had that I had just been assuming this was the way the world worked or the way that I had to be doing things or, or something and discovering that that was only an assumption, not actually the truth and that I could change that. Uh, you know, this ha occurs in things like uh, money and pricing. You know, if you run your own business or you're a consultant, you probably have an assumed idea of how much money you can charge for things. And usually you haven't validated that. Uh, when I discovered that assumption that, you know, I had an assumption that as a consultant, I had to charge things by the hour. Um, and I ran into this uh, writer, a guy named Jonathan Stark, whose big thing is like hourly billing is nuts. It's a crazy thing to do. It sets up all your incentives wrong. So you should be, you know, charging in other ways, uh, value-based pricing or project-based pricing or even retainers um, and kind of highlighting all the ways in which hourly building sets you up hourly billing sets you up for failure and sets your incentives at cross purposes to the people you're working with or working for. Uh, and that just totally shifted the way I conceived of my business and has made my life so much better. Um, so you know, every level of your life, figure out what are the assumptions you're making uh, and then test them. And they might be right, but if they're not, you're probably screwing yourself over somehow. That's definitely a good pro tip. Hey, you and I should talk uh, business at some point in terms of billing and all that kind of jazz because I've been running a consultancy, one-man consultancy like yourself for many years, and so we bounce ideas off each other. But let's do it. Say, let's do that for later. So my pro tip is how to validate an email address. And here is the, the, the hard-earned experience on how you validate an email address and the only thing that you can reliably do to validate an email address is that you send it an email. You send it an email. <laughs> That's the only way you can do it. I know what you're thinking. I have the best regular expression for this. No, you do not. You think you do. Your regular expression is invalid. It is not good enough. You know the old adage, 
the developer, when faced with a problem, thought, I know, I'll use variable expressions. Now he has two problems. Well, that's what you have. You have two problems. And I've known this for years, and yet I was still convinced to add a regular expression-based email validation server-side. First of all, never trust the client, right? You, can't, you can do all you want there, but they can bypass all your checks. Got to be server-side. I put a regular expression-based email validation, and I thought, this one's pretty good. In fact, man, I don't know what came over me. I was actually even talked into like copy-pasting one off of a gist. And it looked pretty good, and it covered most of the bases. And uh, sure enough, a couple weeks back, actually it was probably last week, got an email from a prospective user saying, hey, I'm trying to sign up for ChangeLog Weekly, but it says my email address isn't valid. And it obviously is valid because I'm emailing you with it right now. And I thought, I'm an idiot. Why did I put a regular expression-based email verification on my system? So don't do that. And uh, I know you can find one on Stack Overflow. I'll tell you right now, it's not good enough. Email addresses are so complicated. There's so many valid things. If you're going to do it, and I'll admit that I kept it in there, but I just check that there's some stuff and then an at sign and some stuff. And that's pretty much what you're going to be able to do. And that's just to basically make sure that you don't get some junk into your database. But still, all you got to do is send them an email. And if they click on it, well, that's a valid email address. And if they don't click on it, then who cares? So that's a hard-learned lesson. If you want to validate an email address, send an email. Problem solved. Until bots start clicking on emails, then we're going to have a whole new issue. But so far... So far, I don't think there's bots that will sign up for your thing and then also uh, will we'll create a fake email address, sign up for your thing, and then access that email address and click on the link. When we get there, then we'll have to come up with something else. But until then, just send it an email. All right, that's our show for this week. Like we said, make sure if you're at JSConf, don't miss us. Find K-Ball, find Nick. Next to me, run around like a chicken with a head cut off. Find Suze, say hi. We would love to connect with you. We have stickers. Uh, we'll have limited run t-shirts. We have a live show on Tuesday. Participate in that. And uh, it will be a lots of fun. But thanks for listening today. And we will see you live at JSConf next week. And then the following week, Baras is back. And he's got an awesome show all about the decentralized web. So look forward to that. And we will see you next time. All right. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. Read us an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to leno.com slash changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.